so uh, we, you know we're going to have a pretty good program. I don't know how it's going to be for you listeners. It might be terrible. <laughs> we're going to have a grand time. Hello and welcome to Room Eleven of the Reading Room. Thanks very much for downloading our podcast here on uh, podbean.com. Now, actually featured in the uh, the podcast, we have an interview with the author, Henry Hemming, completely charming gentleman, completely uh, made me swoon. Uh, we've got a story from Sarah Ann Dukes, and we talk to the Lincolnshire Poet Laureate, and he reads us his first poem. And we've also got the, uh, the Reading Room Book Group, which, of course, will be reviewing Margrave of the Marshes by John Peel. Uh, you can listen to us live uh, via the internet on sirenonline.co. UK on the first Sunday of every month and repeated that following Tuesday from 7pm and that's when we include the music which was uh, was very much a focus of, uh, of today's programme but obviously for the, uh, the podcast we're not allowed to include that for rights reasons but do take a look at the track listing we've chosen for this. Uh, let us know if you agree or disagree whether this track listing we had represented John Peel perhaps in the way you, you remember him I would always uh, divert you towards the, uh, the BBC John Peel site and uh, just look through some of the artists there just putting together the track list for today's programme really sort of inspired me musically wise and, and made me listen to a lot of different things, which I think was the exact point of John Peel. I'll see you at the end. Now, this is a CD, so it'll probably play okay, though. Oh, as a matter of fact, it's not going to play at all. That's jolly interesting. <laughs> now to Henry Hemming. As part of the Lincoln Art Programme, uh, for which you can find a link from our Facebook page, uh, the author Henry Hemming recently came to Lincoln to give a talk and to promote his book In Search of the English Eccentric. I caught up with Henry afterwards to find out how the book came about. It came about when I was watching TV one morning and I saw this story about an architect in South London who had made a hedge in the shape of a whale. And the local council, it was Lambeth Council, had gone up to him and told him he had to remove his hedge. And that was the first time when I thought, hang on, here is someone who's not necessarily a sort of Premier League eccentric, but someone with a slightly eccentric taste in, in hedges. And because of the council, he was not able to, I suppose, just to express his eccentricity. And that was one of the things that got me going on this journey. So after that, what was the, what was the next step? I mean, did, did, you, did you meet that gentleman? Or? Yeah, went to go and meet him. Next step was to work out, right, where, what does eccentric actually mean? That's the first Okay, what, what does it mean to you, Henry? What does eccentric mean to you? To me... It's someone who makes connections that other people generally don't. So it's a, a creative nonconformist. But the thing about eccentrics is that they take all these obsessions to an extreme, but they don't do so in such a way that they end up either in an asylum or in prison. So they always end up in this sort of no-man's land between what we think is normal and what we think is threatening or in need of attention or care. And so that was the, the starting point having that, that understanding of eccentricity. And then beyond that, what I began to do was just sort of divide it up into categories and try and find the most interesting example of each. So I went off to find the most eccentric, political eccentric, the most interesting celebrity or aristocratic eccentric or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. a friend of mine once, uh, once said... Glastonbury. He went, you know, we went to Glastonbury Festival, and he said that it just seems like they've taken every eccentric person from every yeah. town and placed them <laughs> and placed them in one place. I mean, did you ever think about going to a, a festival, or, or is that is that conformed eccentricity? Do you think? I mean, that's everyone getting dressed up for an event, and a lot of those people, you know, if they weren't dressed up like that, might be working as accountants, working as lawyers. I mean, certainly to afford the, the ticket price. To yeah, get yeah, certainly. Yeah. So um, I was trying to get away 
from that, not because it's, it's unexcentric, but I was interested in people who had made an entire lifestyle change. People like the reincarnation of King Arthur, people like the Leopard Man of Sky, who is someone who's spent two and a half decades tattooed from head to toe with leopard spots, living as a hermit on the shores of the Isle of Skye. So I was interested in these quite extreme examples of eccentricity. And you come across certainly as very affable. It's all a facade. Okay. But when you're approaching someone and with the thought of writing a book Mm. regarding eccentricity, how how does that conversation carry out? How do you start that conversation? Well, I found out really early on that calling someone up out of the blue saying, hello, I'm writing a book about eccentrics, can I interview you? You found that either the person said, yes, brilliant, I love being called eccentric, in which case, in some respects, they're not actually that eccentric. That's the peculiar thing about writing this book. But for the people I really wanted, the people who would actually run a mile if someone came along saying, I'm writing about eccentrics, what I did was I used a slightly different definition. So I call up and say, hi, I'm writing a book about creative, nonconformist individuals, people who are celebrations of Englishness, that kind of thing. And usually that would allow me to actually meet the person. And then I'd explain exactly what it is. that I'm trying to get at this, sort of, this different, more original understanding of eccentricity. Okay. And you, and you say English there. Was this, was this kind of an English-centric book? Yeah, it was. I see. Very much so. I mean, and that's where it begins, the eccentric begins in England, and then it, uh, it, it oscillates out from there. So I thought it would be good to, to keep it within the, um, within the borders yeah. for that reason. So when people are looking for an English identity, which I think they sometimes struggle to do so, uh, yeah. know, they look around a, a very defined Welsh, Irish and Scottish identity, and some people categorise an English identity as throwing plastic furniture across a, a piazza in Italy when the World <laughs> Cup's on, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, th- this is certainly one day that maybe when St George's Day comes around, we could be celebrating eccentricity. I think we should. I think it's... Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. I'd spent... I mean, the first book I wrote was an account of a journey I did in the, in the Middle East. And I spent a year travelling through the Middle East... And at the end of it, one of the things that was really clear in my mind was that I wanted to get a better account of what it was to be English. And again and again, when you, when you are travelling, you find people who, who will ask you about England, about where you're coming from. And increasingly, I, I found exactly what you just described, that I knew exactly what it was to be Scottish, what it was to be Welsh, what it is to be Irish. But when it comes to being English, it's something that we haven't really defined. And maybe that will change in our lifetimes, I think there's a good chance it could and if it does I hope eccentricity is a part of it Excellent, excellent. But I talked to you a little bit about the writing process as well this is not a novel so you don't, you don't, you're not going to start with uh, a beginning a middle and an end so when you started the project did you have any idea of how it would how it would pan out or did it pan out completely differently to how you, you imagined it it was yeah I mean the, I didn't know which characters I'd meet but what you say about novels is interesting because I think the most interesting non-fiction books are the ones that actually follow the structure of a novel. So I, I really wanted it to be a journey. Yeah. I wanted it to be a journey with a beginning, middle and end, and a quest. And that quest was to find the most eccentric English man or woman. So I very much set it up as that and went at it, went at it in terms of interviewing as many people as I could, researching as much as I could, reading everything there is to read about eccentricity. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, 
a busy two years. Yeah. And we deal with, or we, we certainly interview and feature a lot of uh, unsigned uh, authors, if you like. Can you remember back to that first time you saw one of your books, uh, you know, Henry Heming book on a shelf? Yeah. You can. It was, um, that was wonderful. It was amazing. But then you, <laughs> the moment that happens, then you start to get not so much depressed, but sort of envious by the fact that there are other authors that have some piles of books yeah. and they're on the table at the front of the bookshop and yours is sort of <laughs> at the back. So you, um, yeah, I, I thought that would be the answer to every dream I've ever had, but the moment you find yourself in a bookshop, then you want to get onto the front table. Yeah, yeah, and that realism. And something I ask pretty much every uh, author I interview, writing itself, has that changed the way you read? Understanding the structure and the pace and the style, can you still get lost in a good book? Not in the way I could. And it's a curse. It's like, so, I mean, every time you read a book, it's like a busman's holiday. You, sort of, you find yourself picking apart the style, the sentences, and, and the rhythm of it, especially, and the language. And, and I've actually... And I've got to the stage where I can't, when I'm on a holiday, I, I pretty much can't read. Because the moment I do, I start thinking, I want to write this, or that's gone wrong. Or you get back into your work mode. So it's, um, it's a strange thing, but it means that reading as relaxation is pretty much gone out of the window for me. You know, the answers we get to that are wide and various. Some people say, yes, of course. I don't always believe those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? What, what, what have you got planned next? I mean, you might not want to say. No, it's, um, <laughs> it's not very secret. I'm, I'm going around the country doing a series of talks and workshops on the, um, the new book I've got out, which is all about small groups. So it's about clubs, societies, associations. And it's trying to argue that over the last 10 years there appears to have been a revival of these groups, which, of course, flies in the face of this idea that we're becoming more lonely. That, And in one respect, it takes out one of the legs of the broken Britain argument. And so what I'm doing is, is giving talks in bookshops and to a lot of the groups that were involved in the writing of this book. And you can find out more about Henry Hemming by visiting henryhemming.com. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time to hear a tea break story. Back in room seven, Sarah Ann Dukes read her beautiful story, Life Drawings. In fact, it was, uh, it was our eldest favourite. And uh, when we recorded that session, uh, we also recorded this one, uh, which I'm sure will now be our eldest favourite. Uh, turn the rest of your life off for a few minutes, grab a comfy seat and listen to The Boy Who Never Grew Up, written and read by Sarah Ann Dukes. The Boy Who Never Grew Up. I used to wrestle crocodiles and fight pirates. I used to catch mermaids and tear flesh with a hook. I think the doctors have sewed up a clock inside of me so that they know I'm coming. Sometimes, late at night when all the other children are asleep, I poke at my belly scar and listen really closely for the tick, tick, tick. Sometimes I hear it, as though it's coming from far, far away. Barry said that the sound is probably muffled by all of my organs. It is squished in between my belly and my heart. It is sleeping in my spleen. It is trapped in my ribcage. I like Barry, he makes me laugh. When they aren't looking, I like to steal bandages and make eye patches. I make swords out of felt-tip pens and plasters and strap daggers to my ankles. I storm the nurse's station, howling like an Indian, diving out of the way of hooked hands at the last second. I crawl through tight caves, whipping round corners and freeing the captives from the crocodile nurses until I can't even breathe. The nurses call me a hooligan. I don't know what a hooligan is, but it sounds like the name of an Indian, red-faced and puffed up with feathers and bells. I always try and pounce on Barry and throw his hand to the sea. 
But only in pretend, because I like Barry a lot and wouldn't really hurt him. He is my favourite nurse. I crouch down really low and sneak upon him with all the quiet I have. But Barry always knows that I'm there, and he catches me and holds me captive in my bed. That is how I know I must tick. I like it here. My mummy lives far away, but she comes to see me all the time. She says that she's trying to get a house down the road. I live on Great Ormond Street. All the famous people come here and play with our toys because it's that nice. I don't know who they are, but my mummy gets really excited and puts on her lipstick. She says I'm very lucky to meet all of the famous people. It's not as good as Neverland, but there are lots of lost boys and even some lost girls. The doctors are always trying to send me home, but home is boring. I don't want to go home. My favourite thing is Peter Pan. Barry tells me Peter Pan adventures nearly every night. He says that Peter Pan is in the garden to blow fairy dust on all of the children. One day, Tinkerbell came to play with him. She is trying to pull him away, but he is having none of it. He isn't going anywhere without me, he told me so. He stays very still, so none of the grown-ups think he is alive, else he might have to get back to bed, like I do, if I stay out for too long. He moves for me, though. He gives me a wink and a wave every time I go out to see him. Once, he even played his flute for me. He was really good. I asked Barry to take me to see him every day. I am not allowed to go outside, but Barry sneaks me past them all. Sneaking with Barry is the best fun ever. He hides me behind him and shouts really loudly to the other nurses that he is just popping out for a spot of fresh air. They have no idea. I try and copy Peter Pan. I try to turn really still and grey. Barry says that Peter Pan is a boy who can never grow up. I am a lot like Peter Pan. I hear my mummy talking to the doctor sometimes when she thinks that I'm asleep, but I'm not. I am the boy who will never grow up, just like Peter Pan. Peter Pan is waiting for me to get better. I have to build up my strength and think happy thoughts so I can fly away with him to Neverland and help him fight the pirates. I won't be just a lost boy. I will be just like Peter. I will be James Pan, half boy, half crocodile, gobbler of pirates. One day I will get out of bed and my chest will feel better and Peter will dance on my windowsill and we will fly really high together towards the second star to the right. I can't wait to never grow up. This is Brendan Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. And would you look at the time? That must mean it's time for the Reading Room Book Group. And joining us this morning, our regular book group reviewer, Jill Hart, and presenter of the Midweek Drive and Midweek Drive Morning Edition, Siren FM's very own Alex Leftshaw. Welcome to you both. Now then, as we've been uh, telling you all morning, it's our John Peel special, inspired by the book we're reviewing today, Margrave of the Marshes, his autobiography, completed by his wife, Sheila, after his untimely death in October 2004. John Peel was born before the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. His 38 career as a radio DJ is the stuff of legend. And the bands that he championed throughout his years are too numerous to mention, but David Bowie, Roxy Music, T-Rex, The Undertones, Joy Division, The Fall, The Smiths, uh, Pulp and The White Stripes are but a few. And uh, just to give you a, a bit of an example of the book, this um, the second half of the book here was written by uh, his wife Sheila after he died. And this is uh, me reading a clip of that. Billy Bragg also made his debut on the show in 1983. He had already posted his single, Milkman of Human Kindness, to John when one evening, playing football with a mate, he heard John say on Kid Jensen's show, 
I would murder someone right now in exchange for a mushroom biryani. Billy's immediate thought was, yes. He bought a biryani from a nearby takeaway and walked it to Broadcasting House. Once he got there, Billy told the front desk staff they'd brought a meal for John Peel. John hadn't started his programme yet, so he came down to meet Billy in person. The takeaway was handed over on one condition, that John would try and squeeze Billy's single into that evening's show. John agreed, and Billy had the unique experience of hearing his very own song on national radio, at the wrong speed. John later said he thought the record was wonderful, and would have played it even if a mushroom biryani had not been hanging in the balance. In fact, it led to Billy being offered his first Peel session. At first, he didn't think he could accept, as he couldn't afford the cab over to Maida Vale. Then it was explained to him that the BBC would pay for the taxi. Thus was Billy Bragg initiated into the corrupt and illicit rock and roll lifestyle of which free transport is only the first rung on the ladder. Great stuff. And that's the, uh, the, the biryani incident, uh, as it was called then, in the Peel House. Now, Jill, I'm going to come to you first. Um, autobiographies. Now, I think we discussed last week that you didn't really, or last month, sorry, that you didn't really know anything much really about John Peel. So how, how did you find this? Well, I'd say I'm surprised you let me in today, Paul, because I'm not a music <laughs> person and I know you... You like his stuff a lot. I've been reading a fair bit of biography lately. I like biography, but I have to say, for me, it, I found as a, as a reader who doesn't know much about music, I have heard a few of the people, not quite that dim, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't find it worked for me very well as a biography. And he came across to me as a very nice man who had the good fortune to make his living from his passions, which we would wish on anybody. They came across as a very nice family, but I really feel that the people in it came over as very two-dimensionally, and I think basically that's because they, a few years after somebody's died, it's too soon to write a biography about them. Uh, everybody is trying to be too nice to everybody else with the best of we- reasons, but I just fe- felt that it, they, it came over as very two-dimensional, I see, I both see. in his own part and in Sheila's. OK, Alex, uh, we'll turn to you. What was your, your overview of the book? Well, I don't want to be accused by the Church of Latter-day John Peelites of uh, criticising the deification of the Peelster in his own right. But it was very much, as you've just outlined, Paul, a book of two halves. And I don't think those two halves stuck together. You have initially the first half, which was clearly John Ravenscroft writing about his life and his whole trials and tribulations. And also, I have to say, probably an unhealthy obsession, possibly with his public school experiences, some of which we can't actually go into in a private, uh, or shall we say, a a, a family-oriented programme. Suffice it to say that his part ends when he's being led into a brothel in America. Uh, And then we move, obviously, into his wife, Sheila, and her take on the whole thing with insertions from letters. As they quite clearly say, the book was very much put together after the sort of passage, I mean, literally just a year or so after he'd obviously passed away. It's, it's partly autobiography, partly biography. And for me, despite the phenomenal range of positive quotes that come through from Mojo magazine, from The Telegraph, from The Daily Mail and so on, it doesn't quite work. There was a suggestion with respect to, to, to John that he was almost on one level the classic anorak, somebody who really liked breaking new bands and breaking new music, etc., But then when they actually did make it big, either he would be disillusioned by their treatment of him or it was almost as though he'd become embarrassed and and want to actually move on to the next big thing. Where he was very successful, I think, and this is an observation that comes across in the book, is identifying the next big cultural thing and managing to actually develop a career as a result of that. And I think the only person who's doing that in contemporary radio terms for National Radio 1 at present is probably Annie Nightingale. I would certainly agree with that. And, uh, yeah, it's certainly something... That's something that's been lost. Um, But 
aren't there, would you not say there are plenty of DJs, certainly at that point, who were playing the mainstream artist once once these, these bands had been uh, accepted and taken on and signed? Um, so that wasn't his job anymore. Or perhaps like an A&R man would visit the gigs. He Once he passes them on to the labels... That's his job over, and then it's on to the next thing. It's it's an interesting line that you take there, because as Jill's just said, here we had somebody who fundamentally was quite fortunate to finally find his passion. And the way in which the suggestion about him wanting to almost develop the Peter Principle, i.e. people promoted beyond their capacity to cope and prove that he was incompetent in areas, his, his first forays into television, for instance, and the classic Amen Corner moments that he actually talks about, where he effectively is told by a BBC executive he will never work in television again, and he doesn't come back until he becomes more a kind of parody of himself working with David Kidd Jensen. I was getting flashbacks throughout of the Richard Curtis movie The Boat That Rocked and I don't think he necessarily wanted that I was thinking this is just a parody of a parody really there was there were a number of heart-rending moments in them I and mean, clearly uh, his wife Sheila's battle with the brain hemorrhage uh, the challenges with that uh, Peel's first wife and the issues that went through with respect to that as well um, we mentioned obviously his experiences at public school interesting insofar as not only from the, the the shaping of the character from that point of view, but there was that notion that, well, actually, fundamentally, would he have actually got into the BBC in the first place had he not had a public school background? Because, yeah. you know, recruiting very heavily. And I knew De- Derek Chinnery, and Derek Chinnery was ex-RAF, and he was very much of the sort of feeling that if you weren't of the right sort, and I wasn't, by the way, Paul, but there you are, uh, <laughs> so you might say, whoa, whoa, but then again, I wasn't applying for a job with Derek. Yeah. Oh, maybe I was. Um, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't get into that role, because there was very much, which is why the other thing that irritated me slightly was despite his protestations of being a working-class socialist and a champagne socialist and, and then following through to his passion for Liverpool Football Club, etc., I just got a feeling of, come on, it's just not ringing true here. And I, I'd almost, if John was actually here, if he's looking down, I'd say, come on, John, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about your relationships with Jimmy Savile. Let's talk about, so, yeah, how that's, I'm not saying anything untoward with respect to that, but, I mean, for me, and obviously I work fairly closely with, with Sir Jimmy, um, he has actually taken a whole different route. He's got his eccentricities, yes, so has, has John Peel. But I just felt somehow it just didn't quite work. And the book itself doesn't really take you through that, uh, unless you see it as a kind of partially embellished, fictionalised account of the whole thing. I see, I see. Well, if I can You're hurt by that, aren't you? I, I can well, tell. You, you expected from the radio no, side of things, surely. No, no, no. I am, I am and I'm not. I mean, obviously, I had a, a great affection, uh, oh. a great affection for the man. And actually, when I, when I heard uh, about the news of his death, you know, this was um, that, that public mourning, that's that, that Boris Johnson's got in trouble for in, in in the past, I had a touch of that. Never met him, never. But there was a, there was a connection there, something that you know. And I think a lot of people felt felt the same, uh, certainly the same thing. Um, I mean, I, I take Jill's point as well about perhaps a lot of people being too nice. But did uh, I mean certainly Sheila talked uh, points throughout the book about his his tempers and not being there for the children, perhaps. I thought the family situate the family part of the book. I mean, they're they're swapping musical anecdotes with family anecdotes, which probably does help it to hold together. I don't know. I, I felt he was a very self-contained character. What I got across from it was an isolated, self-sufficient child that had trouble showing emotions became an isolated, self-sufficient man that was very fortunate that he found a, a Barbara to his Tom. To you know, they were living <laughs> yeah. the good life, weren't they? And 
that was what came over. But what I also found is the the other aspects of it. The I know nothing about the music side, but I expected there to be revelations, and I expected there to be sex and drugs and rock and roll and all that stuff. Well, there, there was, there was, but, but, but it was very sanitised in uh, how it was put across in the book. And he also tended to come across as somebody who, in the classic "I made my excuses and yeah. left" tabloid journalist style didn't really i mean there was the suggestion that oh well yes he was obviously looking to live the rock and roll lifestyle i mean his his uh, his connection uh tenuous though it was with kennedy was i thought fascinating yes Yes. because there was a classic case of somebody who'd say well were you a key part of the kennedy life story well not really but then you were actually photographed on television with you know the lee harvey oswald and in the background and all of those issues you just thought culturally you were connecting within that whole field but there, there was there were clearly four stages in the peel life and maybe this is true for most of us really there was obviously the youth scenario there was his time in america where he started beginning to mm. to come to grips i think with something he, he could actually do and and, and, and love to appreciate uh, and then of course there was the the pirate radio stro- initial radio mm. once and at a, and as he said himself initially his views about andy kershaw he thought he was the young upstart who was actually going to take over his his, his role as well and and that as as jill's actually just said and the issues about how he'd go completely ape over uh a missing record or something, but something completely calamitous. And, and even his children weren't quite sure who to actually... In the end, they, they knew that if it was uh, one particular issue, they'd go to, to Sheila. If it was another one, they'd go to John. And that was a line from that. So a fascinating sort of insight. Maybe he was uh, just a case of, uh, like most of us, uh, trying to, to work his way through life and, and, and cope with the, the, the challenges that were actually within that. And I was I, would, I was concerned that this was going to turn into a, a schmooze fest, I suppose, because obviously I, I thought there'd be a, a lot of love in the room for, for the book. But actually, I mean, obviously two people looking at it from a, a literary point of view, which is, uh, which is superb. Uh, Hannah Sylvester, she got in, in contact via Facebook yesterday. She says it's a truly awesome and touching read. A great reminder of the greatest DJ ever. Must read it again soon. Uh, now, that's not necessarily the feeling, the feeling in the room. I, th- I think certainly the feeling in the room is that it was perhaps done uh, too soon after his death. I think so. Um, well, earlier on, Jill, you were saying to me that, uh, that there should perhaps be a generation, yeah. do you think? I mean, I read something similar to this recently. I'm a bit of a John Buckham fan, and there was a book called John Buchan by his wife and friends that was written by the same period after this and it's very nice and you know you feel for all the people but they shouldn't be writing a biography of somebody so soon after their death I don't think it should be the next generation that does it but, but you've got to obviously keep the funds yeah. going into the actual yeah. estate surely you have yes Look at Michael Jackson yes. I mean, lots of books yes. about Michael being written I, I did I did also as I was when I was reading it I I say no musical background here but some of the anecdotes there was anecdotes about I don't know Tony Blackburn based to things like and even as in the John Peel part the anecdotes that they were written down to somebody who's obviously never heard anything about it before it sounded a bit stale it felt a bit recycled well certainly I had heard the tale about his line uh, when he played T-Rex's Get It On and yeah. he said Get It Off and there was a line from that point of view I mean it was interesting in the, the Night of the Long Knives under Matthew Bannister who's spoken at the University of Lincoln of course I did think that there was a t- there was an element where John John's letter to Matthew Bannister mm. smacked very much of the Ike in public school or everything else where he say you toady you know, what you, I think it was very good. You know, and his, his, the, to, the tenor was actually there. I'm sure that there was nothing in that when John was writing about actually it was a good decision to actually get rid of the Dave Lee Travis and the uh, Simon Bates and the rest of the people who were actually involved with that there. Um, but then, of course, he was a bit concerned when he was losing an hour of his own show as well. So it's, there, there were interesting lines there where I working as a professional and clearly this 
was way before he managed to reinvent himself. And that was really interesting from a popular music culture point of view. He did reinvent himself as somebody who connected Radio 4 listeners with, of course, the uh, series he did for, for, for Radio 4, the award-winning series for Radio 4, and clearly his Radio 1 setup. And that was a really shrewd move which worked very well. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Home Truths uh, program was something I, I wasn't familiar with. Did you, did you hear Yeah, it? I mean, that that's was one of... That's where I knew him from. I see. And I think it's fair to say <laughs> that that's one of the reasons with respect to Home Truths and his Sony award-winning uh, takes on that, that he became such a nationally uh, positive figure because it, in, it enabled him to actually transcend those two areas. Whereas I suspect, I could be wrong here, but when we are looking at other characters... I mean, I'm, I, Kenny Everett... I don't think we've seen the same kind of love. For, I mean, an awful lot of love for Kenny Everett. I think he was actually a very, very talented individual. So does Sean Peel. But I think as a, a presenter DJ, I don't think there's quite been that pouring out of affection that we've actually had as yet for, for John Peel. That's a pity because obviously Everett passed away a good few years ago. I got the impression that his, he was two-sided. It was music and people. And it was the two things together that made him so popular. Mm. Although, uh, obviously, Paul, you do know John Peel and have appreciated him for many years. Did the book touch you? Yes, yes, it did. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Something from you. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yes, yes, it did. I mean, certainly the certainly the passage uh, very sensitively touched on his on his death. I thought, and uh, and the tributes that, that that flowed in afterwards. And uh, it was I, I picked out uh, some very nice character traits, um, but I also picked out some you know pretty unfortunate ones, and not the ones that they 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 sort of mentioned. There was a few a few other things in there that I didn't write, but. A musical biography for me is always always a trigger to go back and listen to some uh, so, so, some different music, and uh, usually it's uh, in, in line with bands. And you would go back and listen to their back catalogue with this, and and with putting the program together this morning, we've had a, a wonderful time going over and finding out the, uh, the the Jimi Hendrix, finding that bit bit of music by Jimi Hendrix. This so morning. Paul, admit Paul it now. Paul was very happy a little while ago. I he was, yeah, was yeah, playing yeah. a guitar. This is the key thing. Leg. Are you are you actually going to be doing the Westbourne, Westbourne Grove dance? Is that? They, that was pretty much what I was doing in the right, studio right. earlier. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, why the second best program on Siren? Why are you saying the second best? Do you know what? It's something I'd thought about anyway. Who wants to be the best? There's always, I mean, there's always room for improvement, Alex. But I was thinking that perhaps your program would. Oh, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> would, be, would be the <laughs> best. Well, thank you both very much for coming on down this morning and joining in with that. And uh, just the final question we ask everyone are you going to recommend this book to the listeners, Alex? Yes or no? I'll give it a 7 out of 10 that's a yes Jill (laughs) I think to somebody who knows and appreciates his music it would give them another level and they would find it an enjoyable read that's a yes okay so from the second best programme here on Siren FM we are recommending uh, Margrave of the Marshes and in the spirit of the uh, age as portrayed by Channel 4 I'm doing this programme entirely naked nothing unusual about that of course but I have been uh, bathed in light machine oil and I think look mm, well rather tantalising on the back of uh, our book review this morning, we'd like to let you know now what we're going to be reading for next month. Uh, we're going to be reading a book described by Stephen King as the best mystery of the decade, Case Histories by Kate Atkinson. So if you've read that or would like to read it uh, for the Reading Room book group, please get in touch, readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk. Now it's time to uh, hear one of our 101 books to read before you die. Uh, recently we, uh, we interviewed, I say we, Johnny. Johnny interviewed uh, Richard Herring and uh, he gave us this. The Reading Room. 101 books to read before you die. 
Jonathan Ames is uh, what's not to love, given he's a writer that a lot of people haven't read. He's very funny and very touching and a bit disgusting. It was it was kind of an epiphany for me. I guess because I, it was partly because it was around the sort of things I was working on. It wasn't like, uh, I think uh, Stuart Lee gave me the, these books, actually, and uh, it was when I was writing my blogs, and I think Stuart recognised a sort of similarity in, in, our, in our styles and our outputs. It's great when you find an author that kind of resonates with you, but also is just very funny and maybe that most people haven't heard of, so uh, I would go for any of Jonathan Ames's books. Our thanks to uh, Richard Herring there, and uh, you can hear his uh, superb interview uh, on a recent podcast, Room 10, that would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah, Room 10, if you go to readingroom.podbean.com, uh, you can find our great interview with him there. I don't want to be beastly about Sweden and be accused of kind of racism or countryism or something like that, but if I was offered the choice between uh, a week's holiday in Sweden and painful and humiliating rectal surgery. I'd go for the latter, I think. As we uh, mentioned on a previous edition of The Reading Room, Lincolnshire have been looking for a new poet laureate and they've found one in the writer and performer Joel Stickley. The best way to introduce her to Joel is by playing his first poem, Fedelthorpe. So this is the first poem that I've written for my my residency as as Lincolnshire Poet Laureate, Um, and it's about... A section of coastline just up above Mablethorpe, um, Thedlethorpe, Saltfleet B, Saltfleet, that kind of stretch, where there's a weird combination of nature reserve and military testing ground, which I think is just a lovely juxtaposition. So this is my poem about that. At Thedlethorpe, the sea goes out for miles, and England falls away beneath your feet, while concrete bunkers hidden on the dunes wait silently for rabbits to retreat. Amongst the drift of wood and broken shells, the path along the seaweed tide is lined with white on red official signs that warn that there'll be no reward for things you find. He searches anyway, his school shoes wet, imagination full of guns and gold. He scuffs his feet through suspect spots of sand. Somewhere, back home, his dinner's getting cold. He wants a souvenir of something real. He wants to hold a thing that heroes held, a hand grenade, an unexploded bomb. He wants his heart to swell as theirs have swelled. One scuffing school shoe thunks on something hard. He kneels down and starts to excavate. He feels it, metal, buried in the sand. One hand digs deep, then pulls. He feels the weight. It shucks off sand, emerges with a schwap. The cavity refills with rising silt. His breathing quick, he wipes the metal clean. His heart swells now. Excitement. Fear. Guilt. He holds it up. The surface oddly slick. It feels so heavy, alien and dead. Then, something from a video game he played. War never changes, whispers in his head. It never does, the lump of metal says. He drops it, stung. It thumps into the sand. A second passes. He is still alive. It stares at him. He wipes dirt from his hand. It speaks again, a hollow metal voice. But you don't know the smell of blood, my lad. Your Xbox zombies never taught you that. That churning in your gut you've never had. He turns and runs. The rabbits scatter out. The puddled sands reflect the afternoon, then rise to fill his footsteps as he goes. The concrete bunkers stare out from the dune. He stumbles on a sunken pile of kelp, turns with his ankle, spins and sprints away. Behind him sits the lump of metal, still. He knows that there'll be no reward today. He feels a burning in his throat and lungs. Imagined spitfires cover his retreat. At Thedlethorpe, the sea goes out for miles as England falls away beneath his feet. 
Thettlethorpe, written and read by the new Lincolnshire Poet Laureate, Joel Stickley, who will write a poem a month and uh, will be posted on the Igniting Ambition and the Lincolnshire County Council websites. And he's also looking for unusual places to do readings in. Now, one of those is going to be the Siren FM studios over the coming months. Uh, it doesn't get much more unusual. At the recent uh, Lincoln Heyday Festival at the collection here in Lincoln, I attended a couple of the workshops, uh, one of which was by our old friend Michael Blackburn, uh, which was on creative writing and the internet, which I thoroughly enjoyed and uh, really, really got involved in. And after that, the new Lincolnshire Poet Laureate took a workshop on poetry. And uh, we took a seat among some artefacts and I asked, uh, I asked Joel how he got that position. I saw the job advertised and I applied and they interviewed me and I got it. Um, and it, it, that's actually, it sounds like a boring story, but that's quite interesting in the context of poetry because there aren't many jobs for poets. I don't know if uh, yeah. this might come as a surprise to people who see poetry, you know, big money, rock stars. Um, but, uh, but no, there aren't that many jobs for poets around. So it seemed like a great opportunity. But is there now pressure where there perhaps was no pressure before? You say, you know, there's a, it's a poem a month you have to do as, as Lincolnshire, as the Poet Laureate for Lincolnshire. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose that there is pressure that wasn't there, but I see it as, as good pressure. Um, I only really work hard when there's a deadline ahead of me. And I think that might be true for a lot of other people as well in whatever line of work you do. So it's really nice to have that. That thing in my diary that says you must have written something, edited it and recorded it by this point, um, because then I actually do it. Let's go back to the beginning, poetry. When this is something I'm still coming to terms with or something I'm I'm, uh, exploring as we we go further on the reading room um, and I'm enjoying that journey. When did your journey with poetry start? Well, I suppose I I wrote poetry as a kid. Um, When we used to go on family holidays, rather than have come away with a photograph album, we would come away with a a book that we'd all written poems in. So I suppose that that was always part of my my childhood. But as an adult, my uh, journey with poetry started when a friend of mine when we were at university, was was writing poetry and performing it and kind of starting to get into that performance poetry, stand-up kind of kind of scene. And I wrote a poem which was basically making fun of him. I wrote a poem kind of in a parody of his voice, um, making a pun on his name, saying, oh, I write poems, I'm like this. Um, and God bless him, he, he invited me to come and read it at a, a poetry night he was putting on. And here I am ten years later. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it kind of happened by accident. You've got to be careful what you make fun of, because... Define you. We've been in a workshop today uh, here at the festival, which I, I really, really enjoyed. Really, an eye opener, and uh, I, I certainly, I, I know everyone else enjoyed it as well. You could see that that was that was blatant. So, so the workshopping, how how do you find how do you find that? How do you uh, do you enjoy the interaction? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, for me certainly, and I think for a lot of poets, um, running poetry workshops and teaching creative writing is a big part of what you do. Um, as well as, obviously, that stereotypical thing of being locked away in a room somewhere, tapping away at a typewriter or computer. Yeah, running workshops and, and teaching classes and going into schools and stuff like that is how you, is how you make a living. It's also how you get out into the world and escape your, your office in your house or your bedroom or wherever it is that, that you write. Um, so I really enjoy it. I think it's wonderful. And there are lots of ideas from my own writing that come out of working with other people and working through, you know, through working schools particularly, I think. Kids are far better at coming up with ideas than uh, than growing up are most of the time. Yeah, we've we've been in a workshop today with uh, a, a young boy. I'll not mention his name. Uh, I don't know how old he was, but he was probably the most enthusiastic of the group. Absolutely, uh, very eager, very eager to perform his work and yeah. uh, and really you know got something out of it. Uh, you you talked about words in a way that I'd not really thought about sometimes, 
before. Certainly uh, looking at the the, the rhythms. Mm. Uh, but you mentioned the word game a lot today, which uh, which I found quite interesting. You, it was as if the you know the words are a, a tool in your game. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that part of the reason that, that poetry works for me, anyway, is that you're giving yourself a set of rules. Completely made-up rules, completely nonsense rules. Sometimes it's copying other people's rules. And then the game is to try and tell the story that you want to tell or get the ideas across that you want to explore whilst not breaking those rules or breaking as few of them as you can. Um, That's why I write a lot of poetry which has strict rhythm. It's why I like to write poetry that rhymes. Um, And it's why every so often I write a poem in... uh, a proper form, like a you know a sonnet, a sestina, a villanelle, what have you. Because the more rules you introduce to that game, the more fun it can be to try and you know bend them, work around them, maybe sometimes break them. But you can't play that game unless you've got the rules to start with. Something we discussed around the table today here at the workshop was, um, I, I think it was discussed very very well that uh, performance poets. Um, I don't know. Would you describe yourself as a performance poet or, or not? Certainly, sometimes yeah. a yeah. performance. I, poet. I think when I'm writing. I always I get to the end of a line and I read it out loud to myself and I think that's as good an indication as any that I'm I'm not writing for the page so much as I am for um, for reading it out loud um, and for me poetry is a it's a sonorous thing it's a, it's about the sound of the words it's about the um, the effect that they have you know when they're read out loud by by myself or by someone else so I think that whether or not any particular piece I write gets performed quote unquote um, it's always written to be read out loud um, we, and we talked earlier on about the pros and cons of, of writing for the page and, and writing for the stage I guess if you want the comedian rhyme um, so when you're writing something to be read off paper you know that your reader is going to have the chance to look back over it read it three or four times stop over any phrases they're not sure of have a real think about what you're trying to do and when you're writing for performance you don't get that they hear it once and then it's gone so you've got to make sure that people are going to pick up on whatever you're trying to get across in that uh, that one moment. Hi, I'm Richard Herring, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. This is Jill Hart, regular reviewer at The Reading Room book group, and the book I've chosen is Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. Whilst leafing idly through a medical textbook, Jay discovers he is a medical marvel suffering from every disease known to man, bar housemaid's knee. After serious consideration, his doctor issues the following prescription. One pound of beef steak with one pint bitter beer every six hours, one ten-mile walk every morning, one bed at eleven sharp every night, and don't stuff your head with things you don't understand. Shaken by this near brush with death, our hero, with two friends and a dog, set off on a river trip up the Thames as a rest and healthy living restorative. He describes a beautiful idyllic picture of the landscape, sights, sounds and history of the river, alongside the boys' exploits along the way. Tactics to avoid river swimming, the vagaries of kettles and frying pans for alfresco cooking, getting lost in Hampton Court maze, being towed by girls, fish tails, laundry tails, more than one pub and a strange run-in with an evil-minded swan. They conquer all except the British weather. For me, this is pure escapism to a kinder, simpler world where the absurdities of human nature can be smiled upon. I know no better tonic. Three Men in a Boat has seen me through many bouts of flu, the sniffles and the blues of all descriptions. I am confident in its restorative powers and that they will last me a lifetime.
This is the right speed, incidentally, because you can't play a CD at the wrong speed. If you could, I'd have done it. Earlier, uh, we spoke about the Lincoln Book Festival, and during the uh, during the festival, New Writers UK put on an event at uh, the Drill Hall, uh, aimed at writers just getting started. And I spoke to Nick Tom, who's one of the many members of New Writers UK. Now, Nick was quite insistent that he wasn't a spokesperson for the group, but one of the team. And it seemed to me that this was a very democratic organisation. It is absolutely a democratic organisation. It is, first and foremost, a self-help or help-each-other type group. That's how it was founded. It was founded by three authors, self-published, getting together, realising they, they were in the same area with the same problems. Why don't we do something about it? They took the plunge. They put on a book festival. That was about five years ago now. And a whole lot of people like myself who were in the same sort of position said, oh, right, can we join? And it was, it's very much founded on a groundswell of ordinary need to not write books, but what to do next, how to get them out there, and how to uh, market, how to get people to buy it, that sort of thing. Certainly from the talks I saw tonight, there's uh, a lot of realism in there. I hope so, yes. We kind of, I won't say all of us absolutely expect to make no profit, but if we make something... It's a bonus. We do it because we love to do it. A lot of us are involved with literacy work anyway in schools or that sort of thing. You know, we think it's something that's important. It's part of our, we're not a charity, but we see that as very much part of our role, making sure that literacy doesn't slip away from under us as libraries are closed and that sort of thing. But I would also add that from what I picked up from the talks was a lot of positivity, a lot of people getting some realisation, end products out of you know, their, their hard work and creativity. Yeah, uh, yes, that's true. Uh, I mean, I've found it quite an eye-opener tonight as well, actually, what can be achieved through Twitter and um, the, the web out there. Yeah. You know, uh, we, most of us have a website, and that's probably as far as we go, but the future is probably a little bit more in that direction. Yeah, the question I have, certainly for, for authors at, at this level, uh, you know, the pre-published authors or uh, self-published authors, is the amount of time they put into promotion against the amount of time they spend in creatively. Um, It's it's very easy to be sucked into that hole of promotion uh, and not actually, you know, continue to write. I think perhaps that's one of the main benefits of the group. Getting together means that it cuts some of the work. And so, for example, somebody will see an opportunity, uh, perhaps to get a stall somewhere or other, the word goes around, who would like to join in, and one person has done the work and four people benefit. So is it, is it based in the East Midlands? Is it? it is. The three people who started it were in... They all lived in either Nottingham or the region between Nottingham and Newark. The East Midlands area is the heart of it. Mm-hmm. We have members down in the south of England, um, even overseas, I believe. Now. Yeah, with the name New Writers UK suggests the ambition. It suggests ambition. You're quite right, and that's, I suppose, why we went for it. We, we would like it to be a almost self-governing network of little groups here and there around the country mm-hmm. network because we, we want to have some sort of liaison between them yeah. but not autocratically governed by somebody <laughs> and for more information uh, you can visit newwritersuk.co.uk uh, they were a very supportive group and uh, it'd be interesting to see just in what direction that group goes in I picked up lots of names and details and we'll certainly be featuring some members of New Writers UK over the coming months here on the second best programme on uh, on Siren FM, The Reading Room. It is supposed to be played at my funeral, which hopefully won't be for a while yet. And uh, indeed, I'm very tempted to 
uh, arranged to have on my tombstone teenage kicks so hard to beat because uh, I just think that's uh, as profound as anything. very much for listening to the reading room that was room 11 uh, next month is our oh, it's room 12 it's our anniversary the reading room book group will be reading uh, a book described as stephen king as the best mystery of the decade case histories by kate atkinson so if you've read that or would like to read it for the reading room book group please get in touch reading room at sirenonline.co.uk and that email address is open all month get in touch let us know what you think we'll be back live on air on uh, the first Sunday of the month in July uh, from 10am and the f- repeated the following Tuesday here on Siren FM from 7pm. We'll see you then. And if that doesn't get to number one, I'm going to come and break wind in your kitchen.